0: We The Peace is a podcast sponsored by Pax, dedicated to helping Christian leaders bring peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of God are central to discipleship. We publish teachings for leaders, resources for learners, and host interviews with frontline faith leaders about various topics. Our aim is to love the church, and we want to help you become the peace of Jesus wherever you are. Welcome, everyone, to We the Peace. My name is Josh Buck. In this season, we are exploring what it means to have a Jesus-centered theology. We're learning that for our theology to be Jesus-centered, we have to adopt a global theology where we are being willing to learn from people who are not like us and local theologies from around the world. We are exposing how the Western church has used the Bible in oppressive ways. This brings us to today's interview with Dr. Angela Parker writer, teacher, preacher, New Testament scholar, Greek professor, which is intimidating for me to even think about knowing Greek, uh, who just released a book called, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. In this book, Dr. Parker explores how Christians can learn to breathe again when it comes to the Bible. We'll get into that. And Dr. Parker says we must let God breathe in us, teaching us to read the Bible as authoritative, but not in a authoritarian way. Dr. Parker, it's a total honor uh, to have you on. I've got your book right here.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, the digital copy and this one. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself as we start.
1: So, first of all, thank you for having me, Josh. It's really a pleasure to be with you and to have this discussion. I am, as you've stated, a New Testament professor who I often tell students I came to college later in life. Oftentimes, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth time of going to school did not take, it was usually that sixth time. And I had children young and got married young and then went back to school when my children were teenagers. So I was juggling returning to college in a community college capacity, then transferring to a four-year college and then going on for a master's degree later in life. And because of that experience of Going through education later in life, yeah. I feel as though some of the questions that I came to during the master's process and the Ph.D. process were slightly different than those of my colleagues who came straight out of college. Mm. So I think for me, that journey of raising children and then going back to school and now being a professor and a scholar at this stage in my life just allows me to have different lenses than some of my colleagues, which I'm really appreciative of. I mm. would never change my journey. My journey was the journey that God had ordained for me to go through. And also the idea of being a minister and ordained prior going to seminary. I grew up Baptist, and so I was licensed and ordained even before any kind of educational experience. Mm. And I remember those times of preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching in probably more traditional and conservative ways than I would ever do today. So having those experiences just places me at this juncture in my life with wonderful conversation partners on a multiplicity of ideas and just the multiplicity of ways of being as we think about what it means to, to be Christian.
0: That's really powerful. Well, I've been jumping into your book, and it's awesome because you're a scholar, so you're speaking very theologically and really from the academy, but it's also a memoir where you're sharing personal stories and anecdotes along the way that makes it really accessible. And in chapter one, you talk about being trained as a, quote, white, male biblical scholar which stood out to me because we're talking about the ways in which christianity is enforced as a white theology white religion especially in north america being a colonial place the settler society tell us a little bit about that journey is that something that you saw happen right away or that you recognized over time help us
1: i definitely did not see it right away I recognized the particular training over time as I entered seminary after gaining my bachelor's degree, and I enter seminary and I I'm still holding on to a lot of traditional and conservative readings of Bible and still wrestling with even what it means for me to be a woman in ministry. Mm. And after entering seminary and trying to think through how I synthesize the education that I'm receiving at Duke Divinity with my particular. Black Baptist upbringing, mm. I realized that the questions that I would ask during class periods were usually from that particular tradition. And I remember on a few instances, professors saying that's not the right question to ask. The, that's, that's not the theologically grounded or theologically or biblically biblically based question you should be asking. You should be asking something more universal or something more even philosophically framed. And I could not see how the universal or even the more, quote, philosophically framed question had conversation with the context that I was coming out of and still preaching in during those years. So... Yeah. It was over time that I began to realize, oh, I'm getting an education in a particular German, European, Eurocentric viewpoint of Bible and theology that still thinks of that particular viewpoint as the viewpoint. And I remember... My last class at Duke Divinity was a Christian ethics class, and it was the first time I'd ever been introduced to James Cone. And I remember, so I started my Ph.D., at Union Theological Seminary, and so actually had an opportunity to study with James Cone and took black theology with him. And I remember sitting with Dr. Cone and he says to me, talk to me about your systematic theology class. And I said, well, you know, Dr. Cone, we didn't learn your name until ethics. And now I'm struggling with how could I get through a theology class without hearing the name James Cone? And he began to say, and this is his quote, well, you learn systematic theology from the whitest white man in theology. And I said, that makes sense. (laughs) So it was really an overtime period from the master's, even into the PhD process where I was beginning to see that, yeah. yes, traditional scholarship usually equates to Eurocentric or white scholarship.
0: Yeah. And even though you're being trained in a supposed ecumenical setting where different okay. faith traditions can come together, the questions you're allowed to ask are being policed. Yes. And, and you're saying, I'm asking these questions because this connects to my identity, my context, my Mm -hmm. ministry, and then professors don't have a category for that.
1: Exactly, Um, exactly.
0: And it's not biblical. When you think about theology is even constructed in the New Testament, it's coming out of particular context and time and space. And yeah, so that was a part of the early experience. In this season, Dr. Parker, we're encouraging those listening to embrace a theology that liberates, whereby we actually give freedom to people to develop local theologies out of their own setting. And this is a question to make sure I understand your book properly. And we've identified uh, how our Western context forces us to use God and see God through a white Western, like you said, Eurocentric prism. I see your book as an expression of local theology. Mm. And is it, would you consider your book an expression of your intersectionality and actually local to who you are in the same way that the theology you learn from the whitest white dudes is local <laughs> to them.
1: That's a great question because to be perfectly honest, I had not thought about it as local theology until you asked me or I began to preview that that question. And as I think about it, I would consider, If God still breathes, why can't I an exercise in local theology, but local biblical interpretation unto a localized theological position? Mm. Oftentimes, when I frame who I am with students, I categorize myself as a womanist biblical interpreter that who then has conversations with womanist theologians, and I have to take seriously that. Theology and theological constructions have normally come before biblical interpretation, meaning when we think about Augustine or we think about Origen and we think about those early theologians, they're not necessarily sitting with text and combing through text in ways that biblical scholars would comb through text today, they're actually thinking about how to construct theologies or ways of living so that they can begin to talk about how we understand God. Mm. And so I think for me, I'm a localized or a local womanist biblical interpreter unto conversations with localized theologies that actually have groundings in black women's experiences in these United States of America, which would then make it localized theology.
0: That's really powerful. And how you differentiate between theology and New Testament scholarship is also helpful, too. You're more starting with the text and wrestling with that, where theologians start with concept and system and yes. work from there to the text. Is that, is that correct?
1: Yes, you could definitely begin to think about the differences of theology and, and biblical interpretation in that way. You do have good theologians who do think through text, but I would say that part of what I'm tasked to do as a New Testament scholar is to look at the local context of each text. So, Instead of beginning to harmonize or to bring about some kind of biblical theology, which a lot of theologians would do, I think I'm more adept and trained in thinking through the various localizations of each text and then begin to notice the differentiations while also thinking about how there may be similarities between a Mark and a Matthew, but Mark and Matthew are probably texts that are brought up in different contexts. So how do we have a conversation about Jesus who may be particular for Mark and different for Matthew and what it looks like to think about the Matthew text in a particular area that's not where a Mark is? And so, for me, when I teach texts, I think that I try to allow students to see that each context of the text of the various books of the New Testament are different mm. and are diverse. So, how can we begin to think about the diversities of the way people understood Jesus in different parts of a Roman imperial? empire that has varying contexts all throughout. A particular example would be thinking about how the Jewish folks began to accuse Jesus of being a drunk. Well, if you're in an agrarian society that does not have a lot of free-flowing water, you have to drink what you need to drink, which tends to be a lot more wine as opposed to a city context like Rome, that may have free-flowing water. So when you read Paul, Paul may talk about, or other uh, deutero texts may talk about how you shouldn't be a drunkard, but Jesus was accused of being a drunkard. But for someone like me who grew up in a conservative Baptist context where you're not supposed to drink whatsoever, then you have to have that conversation about how do we understand our text differently and localize so that you can recognize that People actually practice slightly differently based upon where they are.
0: So one turn of phrase that you use that's powerful is that we should be reading the Bible as authoritative, but not authoritarian. So let me see if I understand what this means. (laughs) The Bible as an authority in our life is a great thing. Yes. But conflating the authority of the Bible with a white reading of the Bible and making that objective becomes authoritarian.
1: That's a very good way of putting it. Thank you. I believe that that's exactly what I had been wrestling with and was trying to land on in my own life and in my own theology. To be honest, because I felt as though I'd always been taught that this is the word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God, which is a phrase that we often say in our churches, but don't necessarily interrogate what that phrase means, or even those definitions of inerrancy and infallibility that when i talk to talk to my nieces for example my nieces will say i don't know those words but even if you don't know those words that understanding is still often the background of what we hear in churches even if we don't hear those exact words yeah. that this idea that the biblical text is The inerrant, infallible word of God in such a way that you can't even begin to question or think slightly expansively about the text. And that the text also almost becomes equated with God. And so the ones who have the authority to preach and teach actually become authoritarian in the way that they wield the biblical text as God. So it's almost as if those arbiters of power have the text in their back pocket and become the epitome of God who speaks through the text. And so it's, it's definitely one of those areas in my life that I think I've tried to struggle with and struggle through and think through in a different way that allows an actual freedom and conversation with the biblical text that I think proves liberating.
0: Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I'll give you a little bit of my context as I come to that language and even reading your mm-hmm. book. I think one thing that I've learned is in, in the modern age, we kind of dismissed a lot of the authority of the Bible and pushed away the miracles and and got mm-hmm. into some of that. And there's been such a reaction against that in the inerrancy movement. That's a complete pendulum swing in how we talk about the Bible. And then, you know, being a white male, I recognize that my people just love the clean categories of true and false infallible and, and broken. And that we, we, there's so much safety here in thinking that way. And then as I was reading your book, I feel anxiety when people talk about criticizing Paul, or I get anxiety when people talk about criticizing Jesus and some of the things that he might've done or said, um, or Mm -hmm. the way that the new Testament writers characterize those guys. And I'm asking myself the question, why do I feel anxiety around that? When we learn that like it's okay to wrestle with God, Jacob wrestling with God, or David, like the things he's saying in his, you know, in the Psalms, like he'd be on medication or on suicide watch, like what he's, (laughs) and that we would say it's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to doubt God. There are ways to do that in a way to love God as a person you're in relationship with. But then when it comes to the Bible, we're not allowed to do that. Or when we do do that, there's this, you, you can't. And to me, that's this weird thing where are we deifying the bible in a way that we don't even view god because we're allowed to wrestle with god but not the bible mm-hmm. does that strike it what you teach in your classes and what you mean by authoritative by authoritarian
1: it does strike at that and i think that specifically thinking through paul or wrestling with paul in paul's language i've had folks say to me <laughs> I can't wait till you meet Paul. You're going to have some explaining to do when you meet Paul.
0: <laughs> That's said, a weird thing to say.
1: My response was, well, you said that as if you wanted me to meet Paul today. Thank you very much for that. Right. But my wrestling with Paul specifically has taken issue with Paul's language of being a slave for Christ and also talking about birthing children for Christ. And as Paul talks about being a slave for Christ, we have to realize that he actually has Roman imperial slavery all around him, where he can see that... Female slaves, female enslaved people are treated differently than male enslaved people. Oftentimes, men in slavery were able to be manumitted faster than women. And so women in the Roman imperial period and who were enslaved oftentimes were not manumitted until after they were done their Reproductive years. So, similarly to American colonial slavery, women in Roman imperial slavery usually were put out after they'd been used up bodily. Same thing with Black women in American colonial slavery. They're manumitted or they're put out or they're put out to pasture after they've birthed all these children for the nation. And so, for Paul to use that language, And for us as contemporary Christians 2,000 years later to just take that language in as if it's all good without thinking through it a little bit. That's where I push because that's another way that I think people try to consolidate identity onto a particular masculinized identity. That if we all became like Paul, we would be good. And that's a particular masculinist identity that I'm not sure I want to necessarily be a part of. So how would I think through Pauline literature slightly differently that allows all of us, man, woman, child, black, white, Asian, native to be who we are, recognizing that Paul actually saw all these different identities around, wow. but he's speaking as if he is the, again, the arbiter of all identities. And that that's slightly problematic. So... Yeah. You can think through the biblical text and wrestle with Paul, even as you have the conversation with God about, what am I supposed to be in my identity as a 2021 Christian who wants to be with everybody until we make it home? How do I do that today? And I think those are valid questions.
0: Yeah, and, and so much of the claim of this season, Dr. Parker, is that to develop a global theology is to allow people... And it, it's so crazy that I even have to say that allow people to ask questions that come out of their local context
1: mm-hmm. and
0: allow those questions to become theological questions, not marginalized questions or unapproachable questions or uh, questions that the authority says those are off limits, mm-hmm. which is, is dangerous. And that's a way of controlling the way people look at God. Quick question. We've talked about authoritarianism. What do you mean by authority? Like when you talk about biblical authority, most people, um, I say most people, at least from my background, it's going to be like 2 Timothy 3.16, all mm-hmm. scriptures God breathed. And like that that somehow applies to the whole canon and the Bible, which was put together later and Paul only had the old test. So, you know, its its it's weird even how that gets created. When you think of authority of scripture... That doesn't suffocate us. What do you mm-hmm. mean by that?
1: So I'm picking up on the language of auctoritas which is a Roman imperial idea that conversations and wisdom are ever evolving and ever growing and tweaking and changing. And so instead of thinking about authority as the set standard of what a rule is supposed to be. Actually authority is how we have a conversation and how conversationally we gain wisdom and, and feedback and push back and mm. dialogue with the, the text or with one another, or even with, even with our conversations with God, that authority means I actually take seriously what the text says and I struggle with it and I question it. Mm. And I don't necessarily just swallow everything whole without having a conversation about what is the wisdom behind me swallowing everything whole? Or is there something that I should not swallow without choking on it? Canaanite. and I demolition and death in Joshua. Yeah. I should not just swallow that and be like, "Okay, yay, all the Canaanites are are set to die." That should be problematic. Yeah. So, how do we read the text in its various contexts and have conversations with it as opposed to allowing people to take it in their hand and use it as a bludgeoning tool? Or use it as a weapon to preach over or to preach authoritarian, idealistic situations over groups of people without having conversations with us. I don't mind conversations. Of course, every once in a while I preach, but I also hope that after the preaching, there's conversation that Mm. occurs about the preaching. There's conversation that expands even upon a preached word that expands into an an exposition of the text in larger ways. And I think that's part of it, that the authority is conversation. Authority is give and take. Authority is not just strict obedience, but again, conversation. And I like that. One of the examples I use is my relationship with my husband. Yeah. He is an authority in my life. But sometimes I have to say, you you don't understand this particular situation in the way that I think is going to be beneficial for both of us or for me. So I, I hear what you're saying, but this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And so what does it look like to have that conversation as grown adults in a relationship? Yeah. We're in a relationship with God. And God is mediated through this biblical text, but God is not the biblical text. Yeah, And that's, that's part of the, I think part of the conundrum that we find ourselves in these contemporary United States of America with folks who idealize a fundamentalist view of biblical text, as opposed to what does conversation with the text look like?
0: Wow. That's so powerful. I'm going to, re- I'm going to be reflecting on that. I- yeah. And, and one thing I've learned, Dr. Parker, looking at my heritage and history, the Buck family going back uh, tracing through the South and fighting for the Confederacy and and learning, mm-hmm. I think uh, Professor Noel, an evangelical historian, has very much shown that the people taking the Bible, quote, the serious, were the ones that were unwilling to give up slavery. And so when I even think about biblical authority and and saying, well, God said it, it it it's it it's only the Bible a face value reading of the text historically at least speaking in terms of North American history and conquest and slavery um, those were the folks that were the last to give up the Bible's push towards slavery and to mm-hmm. to look at the Bible in a way where you said well what is the trajectory the wisdom what is a way that we can understand this to where, we're actually honoring the Imago Day in everyone yes, and valuing yes. the image of God in, in everyone. And what what trajectory are we seeing, even though seemingly the Bible clearly endorses slavery, if you're just going to mm-hmm. read through it beginning to the end, without any context of history and listening to the witness of African Americans and those who have been enslaved. Yes. And so for that historic reason too, it, it gives me pause when I Engage the inerrancy crowds or the authority of scripture crowds because that's been some of the most dangerous things that we've gotten into historically.
1: Definitely. I don't have an answer. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. I, hey, yeah. this is this is I'm holding up your book. This is a part of the answer. Th- this is a part of the answer, right? This is a, a beautiful and important contribution and, and pushing the conversation forward in these Definitely. areas.
1: That has been my hope because as we've discussed this is a technically a short book and even though it is a short book i do think of this book as a book that does push the conversation forward and at least allows different and various identities to think about what biblical text has done And misuse of biblical text has done in the world and how we can begin to have a conversation that both comes from folks who honor the biblical text without falling into equating the biblical text with God, without falling into bibliolatry, as I talk about in the book.
0: Yeah. And that that word I haven't heard before. You said
1: bibliolatry,
0: yeah. Bible Mm -hmm. idolatry, right?
1: Yes, that's it.
0: (laughs) You're combining those two things, which Mm -hmm. I think is powerful. I want to ask some questions specific to the book as I work through it. On page 19 of your book, you say, quote, white male biblical scholarship is linked to the idea of objectivity in the academic study of the Bible. For generations, biblical scholars studied under the belief that, quote, objective inquiry was the prime way to do biblical scholarship. That is keeping your personal thoughts and feelings away from any inquiry into the biblical text. Mm -hmm. You say objective reality as a stance for biblical interpretation, I argue, is one of the systematic evils of academic biblical studies. Unpack what you mean by this.
1: The systemic evil of objective reality, thinking through that there's a way... That I can divorce myself from the questions that I even bring to the biblical text. That even in the development of biblical scholarship, when our German biblical scholar forefathers are beginning to put forth these various criticisms of the biblical text. they're yeah. putting bringing forth redaction criticism or textual criticism and thinking through form criticism the interesting thing about the development of objective biblical criticism was that each of them would do form criticism and expect to get to the same answer But then they began to realize that they did not get to the same answer. And they could not fathom that even though they all tend to be German men who are thinking through Bible from a particular Eurocentric viewpoint, they could never get to the point of we are different And we are all doing quote unquote form criticism, but we're still getting different instances or different different answers regarding our interpretation of the text. But still in the midst of that, it was only a particular group of people who had the power to do that. So they could recognize that they were getting different answers, but they could not recognize that if other people did the same thing. They would get vastly different answers based on their particular identities mm. or subjective realities. Yeah. I remember one of the conversations that I had during my master's program with one professor was, you're, you're almost there with redaction criticism, but you're still too subjective you you still bring too much of yourself to the text and i said okay i will now completely divorce myself from the text and just do redaction strict redaction criticism yeah. i could not do that yeah. and what the the systemic evil is that i'm supposed to do that that i'm supposed to divorce myself from readings in the biblical text i'm supposed to allow myself to decrease in such a way that none of the none of what is Angela should even be a part of the questions that I ask. And I think that we still see elements of that quote unquote objective reality when people say, I don't see color. So that phrase, I don't see color is one of those companions of objective reality that says, I don't want to engage or I don't want to see any of the sociological or societal issues that come with your particular identity. Wow. So therefore, I'm not going to see color and I'm going to claim this objective reality that diminishes and decreases every societal background or issue in your identity. Mm. And I think that's evil. I really think that that is the evil part of it.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. I I think as we look at any culture, so let's look at North America as a settler society, Mm -hmm. it's Eurocentric in every way. And so that's the dominant culture. Generally people who are in power in the dominant culture act like their culture is the objective standard. Yes. And that completely has infiltrated our theological discussions where you have to judge everything against white theology that's somehow considered objective. And why this quote, I learned so much from it is, and I I guess I should have known it, but you're saying that like white scholarship tried to create a way to divorce their culture and their identities from the interpretation of the text. But that's literally impossible. Yes. Like whose mind is perfect enough to do that? Who is infallible enough to come to the Bible in that way? It sounds so silly in the same way. I can't come to any of my relationships and say, I am an objective viewer of everything that happens in this relationship. I bring objectivity to this, but somehow we create systems to do that with the Bible.
1: We got it honest. And I say we got it honest because when you look at the history of philosophical thought, thinking about... Immanuel Kant is basically thinking through um, the one of the earlier Enlightenment scholars, Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes sitting in his chair says, I think, therefore I am. And basically just saying, as a person sitting in my chair drinking my whiskey, I know that I am thinking, so therefore I know that I am, a, I am an objective person beginning to think. And so this whole idea of who has rational thought stems from a lot of our German white philosophical thinkers who then infiltrate how early German biblical scholars begin to think. Okay. So, philosophical thought coming out of continental philosophy in Germany. And when you talk about continental philosophy, you're talking about the whole continent of Europe. Okay. But it's it's all the white guys who are in these institutions and in the ivory towers who are thinking. And because they're the ones who are thinking, they are also the ones who are influencing how biblical scholars who are coming in the same realm are beginning to talk about biblical scholarship. Mm. And it's that same Objective idea that I am the thinking person who's thinking about biblical scholarship. And the interesting part about that is they're not just thinking about biblical scholarship, you have to realize we're colonizing a world as well. And as they're colonizing a world, they're beginning to make these categories of Asians, they're beginning to make these categories of Orientals or beginning to think Orientalism. Mm. They'll be also thinking through Africa and they are classifying. Themselves as the objective thinkers, while everyone else is embodied, fleshly, savage. So they're beginning to not just do this with Bible, but to do this with history wow. and with the world and with philosophical thinking, and then also getting into theological thought. So Eurocentric theological thinking becomes the standard that all of us have to fight against in order to think more liberative about what we're doing with Bible today.
0: Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That brings a lot of historical clarity um, Mm -hmm. to how you're saying we came to it honestly. Yes. And then from there, it it just infiltrated so much of the process. One more specific question in your book. On Mm -hmm. page 89, you talk about uh, Paul's teaching, I believe, in Galatians. Yes. And you talk about uh, what's happening in Galatians and, and, quote, you say, Bearing with one another, which was Paul's primary goal, according to your interpretation, allows faith to develop across identities. Yes. Bearing with one another allows faith to develop across identities. You're saying this in the context of understanding Paul from a womanist perspective. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack for, for those that are listening and for me, what does this look like in the context of Christian community? to bear with one another and allowing our faith to develop across identities?
1: Well, one example I often give is I am a mother of black children. And so when we read Galatians or even when we read Romans and we talk about Romans 12, um, we are one body in Christ or what does it look like to begin to think about being one body in christ well usually paul talks about multiplicity of bodies but they come together as one unified body Mm. and there has to be a way for folks to recognize that when i am hurt or sad or troubled or traumatized by black and brown bodies falling as a result of militarized police violence. And I've espoused Jesus as Christ. Then part of my identity is my identity is not just a whitewashed identity in Christ. My identity is still a black mother mourning black death Mm. while still being in Christ. So for those other folks who also espouse Christ and talk about, well, we're all supposed to be one body in Christ, then that means that we should all be mourning together. Don't trivialize my mourning. So how can we not take seriously these various identities that are coming together in Christ? And how can we just not even take seriously that... Varying identities are experiencing various issues as a result of what it means to be different in society. People don't look at Black children and automatically think that, well, Black children, especially when you think about Black girls, are often viewed as being older than what they are, or even thinking about Black women and the maternal issues that we've gone through, Mm -hmm. just Even someone like a Serena Williams, who talks about her own issues with giving birth to her daughter and how doctors would look at her and think, oh, you're not in that much pain or it can't be that serious, that there's something societally that people look at black and brown bodies and think different. So if you as white Christian espouse Christ, then you will take seriously the testimonies that I have as a Black mother who is traumatized by Black children dying or other mothers dying or Black men making up our, a bulk of our prison systems, yeah. and that means something mm. to me as Black mother but also womanist in Christ. So how can we not bear one another's burdens in that context? It just seems antithetical to Christ. If
0: I'm understanding you correctly, you're talking about bearing with the grief, the pain, the sorrow, the ups and the downs of people who do not inhabit the same social space as you, but are a part of the church, capital C Church. Mm-hmm. when we're not taught to do that tribally, being a part of the Republican Party, or the Democratic Party, being a moderate or being wealthy or under-resourced. We're not taught to do that across those categories in America. But what you're saying is Paul's teaching us in Galatians to actually bear with one another in those ways. That's really powerful. What advice would you have, Dr. Parker, for church leaders who, as they're reading your book or they're hearing this conversation and they're like, okay, Sunday's coming up, COVID's crazy. Um, we've got Bible studies during the week. Maybe we're going to do some mercy outreach in a month from now. What advice would you have for them as you're thinking about your interpretation of Paul?
1: I think my advice would be to sit with Paul, sit with some of the conversations that I have in the book. And at the end of every chapter, I have Questions for consideration. Mm. I think that as pastors, preachers, and teachers, we have to allow moments of silence and moments of lament to actually wash over our congregation so that we can then get up and do after wrestling with the hardships, the intricacies, the, the issues of a variety of groups of people. And part of what I would hope pastors, preachers would consider with their parishioners in faith spaces would be what are the mindset changes that need to occur in this particular congregation even before we go out and try to engage other people who may be experiencing hardships, we don't want to and I don't want to be seen as someone who's coming in as a savior of the world, mm. because that's been the problem for a lot of Christianity, especially white Christianity, that white Christianity has looked as at themselves as the saviors of the world. We're here to save all the souls, but not worry about the sociology behind the saving of the souls. So how do congregations begin to think about themselves and their roles slightly differently that they are not putting forth themselves as the saviors of other people, but actually coming alongside and bearing Mm. in such a way?
0: A few more questions, one more off the cuff, and thank you for taking these. (laughs) As a New Testament scholar, what's one of your favorite passages with Jesus and why?
1: Oh, one of my favorite passages with Jesus is probably Mark chapter 5 and it's the woman who usually is classified as the hemorrhaging woman, but I like to think about her as the woman in the flow of blood and that that's more more authentic to the Greek text that she's in a flow of blood and she puts forth her hand with her own agency in order to touch Jesus's garment. And I love that in the Mark passage, Jesus is like, what? Wait, who touched me? I felt power go out from me. And it's fascinating because if you're a good redaction critic, <laughs> you notice that Matthew and Luke slightly tweak that passage because First of all, how can Jesus not know that power has gone out of him? And secondly, um, scholars such as Candida Moss has argued that Jesus is actually acting like a woman because he has something flowing out of him.
0: Interesting. He's
1: he's hemorrhaging. He's hemorrhaging power. So you get this this juxtaposition of a woman who we characterize as hemorrhaging, but actually Jesus is hemorrhaging. He's hemorrhaging power, and we don't necessarily see that in our many readings of the text. So I like the comic view of Jesus hemorrhaging power and asking how'd that happen So I think that's probably one of my favorite passages.
0: That's awesome. Circling back really quickly to having conversation with the text and you talking about the authority of the Bible is actually to engage in conversation. What came to my mind, Dr. Parker, is uh, the Gospel of John, where Mm. Jesus is constantly in conversation with people. You have this divine presence on earth with all power and authority and all these things and has the right to... Um, assert that power and control and all these social spaces. And then the entire book is just about the conversation that he's in. Oftentimes with folks of privilege who he's confusing mm-hmm. or marginalized people who he's supporting. And I think that is such an example of what you're saying in your book. When you talk about being able to wrestle with and like the woman at the mm-hmm. well arguing with and pushing yes. back on Jesus And um, just how messy that conversation is. What if we viewed the Bible in that way,
1: even though it makes
0: me nervous because of my upbringing? (laughs) And that's so much of what I see in your book, If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Before my last question, how can people follow you? Uh, Do you have a website? Where do you teach? And how can they take classes? All of that.
1: So I teach at Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology here in Atlanta, Georgia. So anyone who's interested in a Master's of Divinity, a Master of Arts in Christian Ministry, or a Master's of Theological Studies, or if you already have an MDiv, we also have a Demon program here at Mercer University. You can come and study with us and just begin to engage these deep questions of biblical text. I also am on Twitter at AMP22Fab, so you can find me there on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook. I have accepted a Once Friend request. I think, though, that I'm going to have to rethink that as this book <laughs> becomes <laughs> even more popular.
0: Yeah, probably.
1: Um, and also on Instagram, you'll usually find pics of folks who have already purchased the book as well. Website wise, I'm still devising a website because I never, as I said, I came to academic study late. And even with this particular book and writing it, I did not imagine that so many folks across even the globe would be interested in just what I think about as my own musings. So I'm still developing my website. So that will come. (laughs) Shortly. Awesome.
0: <laughs> Last question we ask everyone, Dr. Parker, what is key to peace in the 21st century?
1: Key to peace in the 21st century, I think, connects to what we were just talking about with bearing with one another's burdens. And I would argue that connectivity is vitally important. You don't think you necessarily have connection with people, but if we actually sat down and talked to one another, if we actually sat down and begun to think about hopes and dreams and how many of us who have raised children or are raising children or are thinking about what it means to be Jesus followers in today's world. I think we would find that we have more connections than we realize. And I think peace is where we can sit and think through and bring those connections together. Mm. That's what I hope for.
0: It's powerful. Well, everybody pick up the book by Dr. Angela Parker. If God Still Breathes, Why Can't Die? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. Thank you so much for being on with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. We the Peace. You can find more resources at madeforpacks.org and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at PAX. This is We the Peace.